Listen, I could easily identify whose parents were who today as we were walking in. Walking into uh, the upstairs, and I saw Danielle. Her family gets out of the car, and I'm like, yep, that is Danielle's family. They, they look very similar, right? As I look out into the lobby, I see Jacob's parents. I said, yeah, I know that's Jacob's parents. They look just like. So I see these parents, and there's so many resemblances that we can identify. Okay, yes, that is who is associated with that family. So many times I hear my, my, my parents say when my kids disobey, and they're stubborn and hard-headed, they say, yep, mm -hmm, that's your child. They see my actions, in, or yeah, my actions carried out in their actions. When, they're, when they are little angels, they are following in the footsteps of their mother, um, getting brownie points here. Men, husbands, uh, fathers, take notes by that. Um, don't, yeah, I'm digging myself in a hole. So, right. So it's easy to identify who somebody's parents is oftentimes by the way that they look or the actions they have, their mannerisms. You can say, yes, that is who that person's father is. Well, in the same way that someone can identify a parent by, uh, or identify a parent by their appearances or looks and so on and so forth, Jesus in our passage today is telling the Jews that he can identify their true father by their actions, right? So in our passage today, Jesus is seeking to show the Jews who their true father is by exposing their thoughts and their actions. And we'll see that played out. So where Israel thinks that because they are descendants of Abraham biologically, which would mean that they would be children of God, Jesus is seeking to show them that that's actually far from the truth. And so, yes, the Jews were biological descendants from Abraham. They would have looked, in a sense, like Abraham. They would have carried on his facial features, his mannerisms, the way he uh, carried himself. But their actions revealed that they were actually children of the devil. It's a pretty offensive message, right? Yikes. That's not a message you want to hear proclaimed in the temple during the Feast of Booths, right? This is not a glamorous message that Jesus is presenting here. Uh, this would have been a very strong and offensive message. And we're going to see that Jesus isn't simply proclaiming this message out of spite. He's not proclaiming this message out of hate. He's not trying to prove a point or degrade his uh, audience just for the sake of doing so. Rather, we will see that he's doing this out of love in order to communicate the true hope of the gospel, that he is their only hope for eternal life. He is their only hope for uh, freedom from sin. So where the Jews thought that being descendants of Abraham was sufficient to prevent them from spiritual slavery and sufficient to give them eternal life, Jesus is sh showing them that they actually needed someone far greater than Abraham in order to grant them this eternal life. They need the great I am, right? The one that we will see who is far greater than Abraham. So our passage today is a continuation of what we looked at last week. So this is all kind of one fluid conversation. So I think it would be helpful for us to go back, refresh our memory of what we learned last week. If you weren't here last week, Brady King did an outstanding job teaching the word. Extremely thankful for him. Uh, my wife and I were serving the kids. I went home and I told Kayla, I said, I was more tired with the kids 
last week than I was preaching every week. So we, we had our hands full, but Brady did an incredible job. I heard several stories last week of, of folks who were still wrestling with and really um, felt like God spoke to them through the teaching of the Word. So thank you, Brady. Um, if you were not here last week, I strongly encourage you to go back, re-listen to the sermon online, an incredible text, and it'll be really helpful for us to understand this passage in full. So in last week's passage, Jesus began to show those who believed in him what true belief looks like. So true belief is not merely intellect. It's if you truly believe in Jesus, then you will be his disciple. You will follow after him. You will abide in his words. And in abiding in his words, you will be set free, as he says. So belief is not just this intellectual aha moment. I get it. It's not I'm going to pray a prayer and then continue on living my life as I always have. No, true belief is this continual abiding in, remaining in, trusting in Jesus and his word. And we saw, however, that the crowd couldn't fathom the fact that they needed to be set free from anything. And they couldn't fathom this because they've never been enslaved to anyone. We're descendants of Abraham. What is this freedom that you're talking about? We've never been enslaved. How can we be set free if we've never been enslaved? And so Jesus' message is not computing at this point for his audience. Now, quick detour. I think this would be a helpful um, bit of information for us as we journey through. Uh, Abraham was considered the father of Israel. Okay? So in Genesis 12, we see Abraham was called out of a pagan nation by God to become a people, to become a nation that would be a blessing to all of the other nations. We see that in Genesis 12. We see here, one, God called Abraham to leave his family, uh, leave his nation, leave everything he's ever known. Um, and in doing so, we see God promise him that he would be blessed in doing so. So God made a promise to Abraham that in him, all of the families of the earth would be blessed. In him implies biological descendants. So from his seed, from his descendants, will be this blessing to the nations. This would have been a profound promise because at the time, Abraham's wife was barren. He had no children. So God is promising a man whose wife is barren, who does not have children, that from his seed, from his children, will be a blessing to the nations. That would have been a promise that didn't make logical sense at the time, right? You need sticks in order to make a fire. You need children in order for this promise to uh, come to fruition. But he has none. And so despite this uncertainty, Abraham went and he followed the Lord. He trusted the Lord. He was obedient to the Lord. He took his wife. He took his brother's son, Lot. And he took all his people and possessions that he had acquired. And he began to follow the Lord. And then in chapter 15, so we see that in chapter 12 of Genesis. Then in chapter 15, God gives validation to this promise. God makes a covenant with Abraham. And here, God promised Abraham that his offspring will be like the stars in the sky. So a lot of stars, a lot of descendants. And then fast forward many years later, we see God faithfully carry out this promise. And so Israel is now saying, hey, we're descendants from Abraham. We are these stars. We are uh, blood from him. We're living proof that God was faithful. And we've never been enslaved to anyone. What freedom are you talking about? 
And this is yet another classic example of his audience missing the point of Jesus' message. Jesus proceeds to show them that this isn't a physical freedom that he's talking about. Rather, this is a spiritual enslavement. They're enslaved to sin, and the Son can set them free from this slavery. He can set them free from the bondage of sin. But this message, unfortunately, has no place in their hearts, and they begin to reject this invitation to freedom. They don't want to accept this freedom because they don't want to embrace the reality that they need to be set free. And before we pick up any stones to uh, condemn them for this rejection, I think we have to admit that this is something that we see in our own lives and in our own culture today. We are quick to reject help because we don't want to be a people who need help, right? Asking for help is a very difficult thing for prideful people like us. But let us understand that at the heart of the gospel is a cry for help. Proclaiming to be a Christian is not a power move. Proclaiming to be a Christian is the most humble proclamation that you could ever make. It is you saying, I cannot do this on my own. I need saving. I need help. Jesus, help me. So we have to understand that. Their only hope for eternal life is standing right before them in Jesus. But yet, as we saw last week, they're beginning to seek to kill Jesus. They're rejecting his message. And so Jesus is one seeking to show them that his message that he's proclaiming is reliable. It's a trustworthy message. It is true. Um, His father really is God and his message really is from God. He is speaking of what he is seeing from God or with God. And the crowd, however, is rejecting this message from God because they're doing what their father is doing. So Jesus is secondly seeking to show them that sonship is proven, not rooted in or given from, but it's proven through obedience, not heritage. So their actions are revealing the truth about where they stand with God. Their actions are revealing that they are not sons of God. So that leads us to our passage today. Our passage today begins with their response to these words from Jesus. So in response to Jesus' accusation that they're hostile towards Jesus and their hostile actions are revealing who their father truly is, they respond in verse 39, Abraham is our father. Okay. So once again, they're pointing to Abraham and they're using that as validation to their relationship with God. They're saying, we are Abraham's seed. We are his descendants. We are from his bloodline. We're doing what we've heard from Abraham. We don't need you, Jesus, because our father is Abraham. That's a very common thought process for us here in the Americanized church, right? It's very common to hear a response to, hey, are you a Christian? Yes, I'm a Christian. Well, how do you know that you're a Christian? Well, that's how I grew up. My dad was a Baptist preacher. My grandfather was a preacher. I grew up a Christian, and so therefore I am a Christian. It's easy to think that the faith of your parents or grandparents is sufficient to save you, but it's not. And so listen to me. Jesus is showing his audience that being a biological descendant of Abraham did not equate to salvation. It did not equate to freedom from sin. 
And rather, or in the same way for us today, being a biological descendant of a believer does not equate to salvation. Growing up in a Christian home does not mean that you are, in fact, a Christian. Um, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Have you abided in him? Do you trust in him? There's a personal relationship here that we must have. So what we're about to see is the crowd thought that they were in God's family because they were biological descendants of Abraham, but their actions are revealing otherwise. So in verses 39b, the, the second half of verse 39 through verse 41, Jesus responds to their statement. And here he begins to show them how their actions are inconsistent with Abraham's actions, which reveal that they're not Abraham's children. And if they're not Abraham's children, then that means that they have another father. And Jesus is beginning to build this argument of who their father truly is. So let's look at, the, at their response, Jesus' response. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham or the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. So where they think that they have no need for freedom because of their bloodline, Jesus is exposing the reality of their brokenness. Jesus is saying, how do your actions reflect the actions of Abraham? They don't. They're, they're very inconsistent. You're pursuing to kill me, and your pursuit to kill me reveals that you're a child of someone else. So if I proclaim to be an Alabama fan, which I never will, but I always go to Alabama, or Auburn games, which I never would, and always wore out Auburn shirts, which I wouldn't, you would begin to think, okay, there's an in inconsistency here. He's claiming to be an Alabama fan, but his actions, everything he's doing is revealing otherwise. And that's what Jesus is saying. The proof that they are not children of Abraham is in their inability to do the works that Abraham did. Abraham's actions were the opposite of their actions. So the first question that I asked here as I was studying this text is, what were the works of Abraham? What works did Abraham do? Well, for, for starters, I think Jesus' words here give us an idea of what these works would be. So let's look at this. The statement, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham, that tells us that whatever they're doing is the opposite of what Abraham did, right? So where they're seeking to kill Jesus, Abraham would have sought to exalt Jesus. Where they're at war with Jesus, trying to suppress his truth, Abraham would submit to the truth being told by God. So where Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, they're rejecting the message of God. Abraham believed, he accepted, he followed. They're rejecting and pursuing the opposite direction. Abraham was a man who listened to God, who walked with God, and who trusted God, even when nothing made sense, right? He was a man who believed God, had faith in him. He was a man whose faith resided in the promises of God. But on the opposite hand, the descendants of Abraham, now the, the, the men that Jesus is speaking to, are seeking to kill Jesus, the one who has told the truth that he has heard from God. So their actions are inconsistent with Abraham's. Abraham believed, and they're rejecting. So Jesus is looking at their actions, and he's saying, you're not sons of Abraham. What you're proclaiming 
is false. And they respond to Jesus by saying, we were not born of sexual morality. We have one father, even God. So here they're giving further validity to their claim to be Abraham's children. They're claiming to be pure born children. They're not an illegitimate breed. We were not born of sexual morality. Now, one thing that was really interesting that I read in some of the commentaries, several commentaries pointed this out, is that this could have been easily a subtle jab towards uh, Jesus' mother's virgin conception, right? So we know our fathers, but you, Jesus, you have two fathers. Joseph was your adopted father. Your mom was conceived outside of wedlock. So we presents this stark contrast between the people Jesus is speaking to and Jesus. So we weren't born of sexual morality. Wink, wink. Right, Jesus? Like somebody we know. Uh, you see this kind of subtle jab at Jesus um, not being Joseph's biological um, son. So in their attempt to affirm their legitimacy, they could easily be insinuating that Jesus is illegitimate. This could be a jab at him. We were not born of sexual morality. We have one father, even God. Whether that's part of their motives or not, the point still remains here. They're claiming that their conception, their birth is pure, and they're truly descendants of Abraham, which means God alone is their father. They're claiming that they belong to the one true God. But Jesus is showing them that their hatred of Jesus reveals who their father truly is. So in a somewhat Jerry Springer fashion, he's letting the crowd know that Abraham is not their father. The results are in, we know who your father is, and it's not God, it is the devil. Let's look at how Jesus begins this in verse 42. If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. So Jesus is saying the proof of being a child of God is love for Jesus. If you don't love Jesus, you're not a child of God. Jesus is not an enemy to God who came on his own accord in order to steal God's glory. He was sent from God, for I came from God and I am here. Meaning the one standing before them is the one who came down from heaven. The eternal God. He came not on his own accord, but the Father sent him. So their lack of love for Jesus, one, is exposing their lack of love for God, and two, exposing who their true Father is, the one that they are submitting to. So how do you know if you're a child of God? Do you love Jesus? Do you trust Jesus? Is he your hope? Proof of being a child of God is found in your love for Jesus. If you love Jesus, if you cling to him, abide in him, trust in him, follow after him, then you are a child of God. That's how we know if we are a child of God. Love for Jesus is evidence of being a son or daughter of God. Let's look at verse 43. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Now, Jesus is not saying that he is a poor communicator and that's why they, they can't understand what he's saying. Rather, he's saying that they cannot understand him because of their love for falsehood. Right? So the focus here is on their unwillingness to accept Jesus' message rather than their inability to understand its meaning. The issue is found in their refusal to listen. And Jesus then says in verse 44, You are your father's 
You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So the cat's out of the bag here, right? He, the, he has made it abundantly clear who their father is, where he's been hinting at it leading up until this point. Here it is. Truth is out. Jesus explicitly tells the truth. Your father is the devil. You are of your father the devil. You like what your father likes. Your will is to do your father's desires. What is his desires? To kill to destroy, to lie, to deceive. He was a murderer from the beginning. That would have been a reference to a very common passage back in the beginning of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. So as Adam and Eve are dwelling with God in perfect harmony in the garden, the devil comes in the form of a serpent. And what does he do? He lies. He twists the truth. He deceives Adam and Eve into eating the forbidden fruit. And from this uh, deception comes death. So this wasn't a slip-up. This wasn't an accident by the devil. He didn't accidentally lead them to eat the fruit. My bad, I didn't mean to do that. No, this was calculated deception. This is war against God. He does not stand in the truth, the devil does. There is no truth in him. He is a liar, and he is the father of lies. And Jesus is saying, that's your father. Your actions reveal that you are not sons of Abraham who believe God, trusted in God, cling to truth, your actions are revealing that you are a son of the devil who is a liar and a murderer. This is a tough message to receive. And then in verse 45, Jesus says, but because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. So again, their rejection of Jesus reveals that they're sons of the devil. They do not love Jesus because Jesus tells the truth. That's, that's key. They do not love him because Jesus tells the truth. The reason they do not believe Jesus is because Jesus is proclaiming that which is true. You ever hated someone so much because they are the ones who tell you the truth? They get annoying? Like, man, give me a lie every now and then. Does this pants make me look uh, larger? And you're like, nah, you look good. Like, tell me, tell me a lie. We don't want to hear the truth. Um, and so what we see here is that these folks, they loved deception. They did not want to hear the truth about themselves. They loved being able to hide their sin in the dark. And so when Jesus is coming, clicking his flashlight, and he's beginning to shine the light on the depths of their hearts, exposing their sin, they don't like that, right? Feed me lies. So they would rather be slaves to sin in private than embrace their only hope for freedom, the truth bearer Jesus. Their rejection of Jesus is rooted in the fact that Jesus is speaking the truth to them. So listen to me, this is a temptation that we will face as well, that we do face. In order to believe the good news about Jesus, we have to face the truth about ourselves. We have to come to terms with the fact that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were not good. As Ephesians 2 says, we were following the ruler of this earth. We're following the devil, sons and daughters of the devil. And because of this, we have no hope for eternal life within ourselves. Proclaiming to be a Christian is not a power move. Proclaiming to be a Christian is the most humble proclamation you can make. Our only hope for eternal life is found in Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus, we can become adopted sons. As Wayne said earlier, we can become adopted sons and daughters of the one true God. 
So this is something that we have to come to terms with. Jesus then in verse 46 says, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? So feel the weight of what Jesus just did. This is still during the Feast of Booths, okay? So the Feast of Booths, for those of you who, um, this is your first time here, the Feast of Booths would have been a very popular feast. It would have been one of three pilgrimage feasts, meaning you have Jews required to come to Jerusalem to observe this feast. So you have tons, thousands of people here, and Jesus is in the temple making this proclamation. There's a large crowd. So Jesus takes the microphone, holds it up, and says, if any of you can convict me of sin, come, do it, right? If, if Caleb said this, hey, if any of you can convict me of sin, there'd be a long line of people coming to, to share that sin. I, I used uh, Caleb as an example because he's the, the most center, simple person here. Um, so, right, I would have used myself, but nobody would have stood in line. Um, I'm the most humble here, right? Uh, no, so you, you can imagine that there's this, this long pause. Crickets begin to chirp. Hold the microphone up. Come. Share with me the sin that I've committed. Nothing. All right. So, so why, if I haven't, if you can't convict me of sin, what makes you think that I'm lying to you here? What would make you think that this is my, my this, the one sin that I've committed? If you can't com- convict me of sin, if I'm blameless, Jesus is using his blameless actions as proof that his words are true, right? And then in verse 47, he says, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So the reason why you reject me is because you're not of God. The reason why you do not hear me is that you are not of God. Faith in Jesus is our only hope for being a child of God, yet their rejection of Jesus is showing them that they are, in fact, sons of the devil. Their actions are far from Abraham's. So Jesus is forcing his audience to reflect on the question, whose actions do you reflect the most? Is it Abraham's, the one that you are a descendant of? Do his belief, trust in God, do your actions reflect that? Or do they reflect the devils who is consumed with lying and consumed with murder? And they have to come to terms with the reality that their actions, that Jesus, the message he's proclaiming is true. Their actions reflect those of the devil, which should lead them to come to Jesus and believe. And I think that we have to reflect on the same question as well. Whose actions do your actions reflect most? Is it Abraham's? Do you believe God? Do you trust God? Is he your only hope for salvation? Or do your actions reflect those of the devil? Do you embrace the truth about Jesus? Do you embrace the truth about yourself? Or do you hide from the truth about Jesus? Do you hide from the truth about yourself? Rejecting the truth about Jesus and ourselves reveals to us that we are, in fact, sons of the devil and not of God. They then respond with this classic comeback in verse 48 as we continue to read. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Listen, sometimes I think I'm quick and I'm witty, but then nine times out of ten I realize I'm not. So growing up, when people, if someone says, Ryan, you're really stupid, I would be like, you're stupid, right? Like you, you come back with the same rebuke. You're ugly. You're ugly, right? Like I, you, you can't come back with something, anything, with anything better, and so you just come back with the same offense. I think that's exactly what we see the audience doing here. You are sons of the devil. Are we right in saying that you're demon-possessed? Like, good comeback, guys. Very creative. Um, I feel like the crowd is doing that same exact thing that I often find myself doing. In the face of the accusation that their father is a devil, they ask Jesus if he's possessed by a demon. What a comeback. And Jesus responds, I do not have a a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. 
Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So no, Jesus is not demon-possessed. He's the one from the Father, and he honors the Father. Think about it, right? If If Jesus was possessed by a demon, that would be the worst demon in all demons school like he would be a terrible demon like jesus is not guilty of sin he's perfectly walking in obedience to the law like this demon needs to be fired if he was possessed by a demon he is doing a terrible job at that but what jesus is doing is he honors the father perfectly but they're dishonoring jesus they dishonor him by one claiming that he is possessed by a demon and two by not giving him the proper honor that he rightfully deserves as the Son of God. And so they therefore dishonor the Father. We see here that the Son honors the Father and the Father glorifies the Son. And then smack dab, I love this, smack dab in the middle of this rebuke, Jesus says, if you keep my word, you will never see death. Now, Jesus is not saying that if you keep his word, then you're never going to die. Like this is our... Um, only this is the fountain of youth, right? This is what all of the pirates have been going to find, but this, this is it. If you abide in his words, then you're never physically going to die. That's not what he's saying here. There's an interesting stat out there that five out of five people will die, will pass away. Right? We had to face that blaring reality last week of the passing of a hero in the faith, Coach Jacobs. Right? Death is inevitable. It's inescapable. Jesus himself dies on the cross. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that if you do what he's been calling you to do, which is come to him and believe, clinging to him as your only hope for freedom from sin and your only hope for eternal life, then you will never see death. Though you will die, you will live with Christ for all eternity. He's inviting them, come, trust in him, and you will have eternal life. The beauty of the gospel is that when you believe in Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit. And in that moment, you're miraculously brought from death to life. You've been made alive with Christ in a spiritual sense by the mercy of God. So where, when you, your physical body will pass away, you will be at home with the Lord for all eternity. Belief in Jesus leads to eternal life. If you abide in, cling to, trust in the message he's proclaiming, You will never see death. Jesus here is claiming to possess power over sin and death. He's claiming to possess the power to give life, give eternal life. And he's inviting children of the devil to come to him in faith, believe in him, so that they might have this life. So Jesus lovingly and truthfully exposes their corruption so that he could share with them the true hope. This isn't in my notes, but I think there's a a practical example for us here. Jesus is very abrasive in a sense. He's um, showing them their depravity, showing them um, how sinful they are, but he's doing it in a way to communicate and point to them their only hope for eternal life. So in our conversations, we don't point fingers at people's sin just for the sake of it. We do so in love and grace in order to share with them the only hope for eternal life, inviting them, come, trust in him, believe in him, and you will have eternal life. So may we not uh, 
um, just expose, point fingers at people unlovingly just for the sake of doing so, but may we lovingly and truthfully expose um, the corruption of this world in a way that compels people to come and uh, drink of this hopeful message of eternal life in the same way that we have ourselves. Uh, that was for free. They, however, respond to this invitation. The audience does by saying, now we know that you have, had a, that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? So, yes, you are demon-possessed. Not even Abraham, the father of Israel, or, or the prophets. Not even them avoided death. Death is inescapable. How can you say such a thing, Jesus? So, once again, they're thinking merely in the physical. They're unable to understand this message that Jesus is proclaiming. But Jesus responds, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So Jesus doesn't respond by answering their question directly. Rather, he says, the God that you claim to serve is my Father, and he's the one who glorifies me. Once again, he's saying if they truly knew God, the God that they claim to serve, then they would truly know Jesus. But they don't know God, and so therefore they don't know Jesus. But Jesus knows God. Jesus, the Son, truly knows the Father. They have this intimate relationship. He is truly the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man, that has come down to proclaim good news to the poor and set the captive free. And Jesus then brings back up their father, Abraham, and he says, Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So Jesus here is speaking in a personal, divine manner. He's speaking out of a divine knowledge, as if he was there to see Abraham rejoice. And not only is Jesus claiming to know God, but he's claiming that he knew Abraham on a personal level. Abraham rejoiced that he would see the coming of Jesus. And the fact that Abraham rejoiced over the coming of Jesus tells us that Jesus is claiming to be superior to, Jesus, or to Abraham. So Abraham acknowledged the fact that Jesus is superior, not, not vice versa. So it's Abraham, Jesus, not Abraham, Jesus, right? We, we see this here. Yes, Jesus is greater than Abraham to answer their question. And Abraham, their father, acknowledged this truth. Jesus is the one that Abraham's hope resided in. If they were truly Abraham's children, then they would notice this and they would join in his rejoicing. So following these words, they say, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus responds, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was I am. Okay, so that's, that's a very interesting statement. Um, Jesus has made a lot of I am statements leading up to this point. He's made two up until this point. He'll make seven throughout this Gospel of John. Up until this point, he's claimed to be the bread of life. And most recently, a couple weeks ago, he claimed to be what? Do you remember? Light of the world. Okay. Uh, so he's claiming to be the bread and the light, and by the end, he'll, he'll make seven claims. 
If all of these claims, in all of these claims, he's claiming to be able to do and accomplish things that only God can do. So he's, he's making the argument that he is, in fact, the Son of God. Um, but here in verse 58, Jesus isn't just claiming to be, to, to be able to do these things of God. He's claiming to be God. He's claiming for himself the divine covenantal name of God. In Exodus 3, God appeared to Moses in a burning bush, and he calls Moses to go to Egypt and to set his captives free. So they're enslaved in Egypt. And during this exchange, Moses asked God to tell him what his name was so that he could go and tell the people. And God responds, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So Jesus here is claiming to be the God of their fathers. He's claiming to be the I am. He's claiming to be the creator of of all things, the great I am. He's the one. He is the one who called Abraham. He is the one who heard Israel's cry in slavery and acted on their behalf. He is the one who delivered them from their enemies. He's the one who filled the Nile with blood. He's the one who sent the frogs and the gnats and the flies. He's the one who um, killed all of the Egyptian livestock. He's the one who sent the boils, who sent the hail, who sent the locusts who sent the darkness and who killed all the firstborns of the Egyptians. Uh, he is the one who parted the Red Sea when they felt hopeless and trapped. He's the one who delivered his people from slavery. He's the one who dwelt with his people in the wilderness for 40 years. He's the one who provided for them miraculously the bread from heaven and the water from rocks when they had none. And he's the one who led his people to the promised land. And he's the one who dwelt with them. He is the almighty God, the great I am which means the great I am has come and dwelt among man in order to redeem sinners through his death on the cross, as we will see at the end of this gospel. So you, can make, you cannot make a more specific claim to deity than the one that Jesus has just made. And because of this, we see in verse 59, they pick up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the greatest Jesus juke of all times. He, he avoids them. And so listen to me. There's, there's two types of responses you can have to Jesus. You can bow down to him in reverence, awe, and submission. Or you can pick up stones to throw at him. There's no middle ground. Jesus is either a blaspheming fool or he is the great I am. There's no middle ground. And if he's the great I am, if what he's been proclaiming is true, then we can trust him. We can trust him for eternal life. A person is justified, made in right standing with God only through faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation does not depend upon your ability to try harder and do more good things. It rests on Jesus. The almighty God of the universe came to earth in the form of a baby. Right? Merry Christmas, by the way, a Christmas season that we celebrate God coming and dwelling among man. His mother, Mary, was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He's born in a manger. What an incredible picture of humility. He could have easily um, 
done something more noble than that. But he then, after being born, he grew in wisdom and stature. He grew like us. He learned like us. He bled like us. He laughed like us. He yawned like us. He slept like us. He wept like us. But he never sinned like us. He walked in perfect submission to the Father, doing exactly what the Father told him to do. And he did so to the point of dying on the cross for sinful humanity like you and I. That was his purpose in coming. He died the death that we should have died. He took upon himself the punishment that we all deserve. And he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death, so that through faith in him we never have to taste death. So rest in this truth, church. Rejoice in this truth. Cling to this truth. Abide in Jesus. Rest in the gospel. Rest in Jesus. The great I am loved us enough to die for us. And if this is true, then we can trust him in every aspect of our lives. He is a good God who never leaves his people. The great I am never left his people in the past. He was always faithful. And so that means that he will always be faithful. We can trust him in all things. Yes, Jesus disciplined, or God disciplined his people. But through all of this, though they encountered discipline, though they encountered many trials, they never encountered them alone. That truth has not changed for us today. Though we encounter many trials in this life, we know that those trials cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So ever since the garden, the devil has been a liar, hell-bent on our destruction, but from the beginning, before the, all things were created, before the foundations of the world, God has been good, and he possesses a good plan for his people. It was God's plan to redeem sinners like us through Jesus' death on the cross. That was not his plan B. It was his plan A. So the actions of Jesus' audience reveal who their true father was. Though they claim to know God, their actions reveal otherwise. True belief in Jesus entails following Jesus. True belief in Jesus entails abiding in Jesus. So the question is, do the words of your mouth and the meditations of your heart, does your life reveal that you are sons and daughters of God? Or do they reveal that you are enemies of God, sons and daughters of the devil? So if you are sons and daughters of God because of your faith that resides in Jesus, then may you continue to grow and trust in him for all things, in all situations. Um, so as we close, um, Wayne, you can go ahead. Um, we want to be a church that, that goes through life together, that rejoices when things are going well, that weeps when things aren't going well. Um, in the good times and bad times, we want to go through those together as a church. So. Um, we have three pillars of the church, biblical teaching, authentic community, family discipleship, okay? Um, so we want to teach God's word. We do that on Sundays. We do that in community groups. We want to be a church that's um, plugged in the community. I look around this room and I think um, everybody here is plugged in the community at one of our four community groups. So I praise God for that. Um, and then we want to be intentional in discipling our families, uh, family discipleship. So... The Cunninghams, Wayne just went back to get one of his little girls. Um, they make our, they have, they make our family, our children's ministry double every week because they have so many kids. Um, 
for as long as I've known the Cunninghams, Ava has always been a Cunningham. Um, and Ava is one of their foster childs. Uh, sweet little girl. Um, tomorrow will be their last day. She's going to go live with her um, grandmother, which is really difficult. Um, there she is, that sweet girl. Um, so when you come on up here. So this, this is a, a tough reality of a lot of uncertainty. In our minds, we think that it would be so much better for this girl to, to stay with the Cunninghams. Um, that's our desire, but God has different plans. Um, and so we want to trust him. But as she leaves, what we've been praying for as a group is that God will save her and that God will protect her. Um, and as we saw in our passage today, you have descendants of Abraham biological descendants who grew up in a good home who are sons of the true God. So growing up a Cunningham does not guarantee that she will be saved. Now look out in this church and we have people who have very terrible home lives who by God's grace they, they were saved. And so yeah, we, we trust God that he will protect her and we plead to God that he will save her. So as a church, if y'all would, if you would just come up and um, we just want to lay hands on Wayne and lay hands on this sweet girl, um, praying that God, that God will protect her and that God will save her. Um, Devin, would you would you start praying and then Zach, would you follow and then I'll close this? God, we come to you now, God, and we thank you. God, we praise you for God, your son. Thank you that we are adopted into your kingdom, God. And right now we we looked up the Cunninghams, God, and we thank you for the picture of the gospel that they have shown us through their prayer for Ava, God, and we just pray for Ava. God, we, we have come to love her. God, um, what a joy it has been to see her grow in this family. God, we pray for the days to come that you will just protect her. God, we pray that her grandmother will see your love through the Cunninghams, God. God, we pray for her safety. God, we pray for her salvation. God, we pray that you be glorified through her life. Yeah, we thank you uh, for the opportunity we've all had to uh, share with Cunninghams. And, um, God, just to love on this little girl. And um, our, our hope and prayer is uh, you have her young age, God, that impacted by that, that love that she's experienced in the community here at uh, this church. And, um, God, we, we've expressed that uh, our desires for her remain with the honey camps and uh, God, we're just being honest. That's, that's a difficult um, to release her. Um, God, we lift up Deborah, God, be with her. God, we pray that you save her. 
God, we pray for Ava's salvation. God, we pray for her safety. God, we trust you. The great I am, the one who never left us in the wilderness. Holy Spirit, comfort the coming ones today and leading up to the departure, God. Comfort them this week. God, I, I can't imagine what they are going through. So Holy Spirit, comfort them. Give them peace. And God, again, we, we plead to you that you save her protect her. God, send your son's name that we pray. Well, guys, this, this is um, this is it. So, love y'all. Um, hug that girl, kiss her. Uh, don't kiss her too much because it's six seasons. <laughs> Just give her a high five. That's a good question.